You've heard this statement before, haven't you? Clothes make the man, right? How many of you believe that? No. I remember in the early years of our church, back when I was in my early 30s, I know it's a stretch, a bunch of us were talking about dressing comfortably and the subject of Sunday services came up. Someone suggested that I declare this Sunday a jeans and sneakers day. And this means that everyone, including myself, dressed neatly and comfortably in casual clothes. I love that idea. Any excuse to get me out of dress shoes and a tie, I used to wear a tie every week, actually used to wear a suit when I first started preaching here. Now I know these days, and most people dress pretty casually every week anyway, and I rarely wear a tie, but I still don't usually don, I still usually wear dress pants and dress shoes, so today, in honor of that suggestion from many years ago, here I am, jeans and an untucked shirt. Listen, if clothes makes the man, then I guess I'm a jeans and sneakers kind of guy. Let me ask you a question. What kind of clothing makes a good Christian? What kind of clothing makes a good Christian? Someone once said that no garment is more becoming to a Christian than the cloak of humility. That's what Paul's really getting at in Philippians chapter 2, which is where we're going to be today. Paul's getting into the tough issues here. If you haven't already guessed, we're starting to dive in. Actually, we've dove into some pretty tough issues previously. Now we're getting into more. To be sure, the clothing of Christianity is much more complicated than pants and shirts and shoes and sneakers. It's a lot deeper than colors and materials. And while Paul delivers no simple answers or solutions, he wants to give a sincere exhortation to some church people who are struggling with some problems. And he's doing just the opposite of what happened to one businessman who took a dinner flight across the country. After the plane had reached the cruising altitude, the flight attendants began serving everyone the meal. And as the man picked up his fork to eat his salad, he noticed a big black roach just beneath the lettuce leaf. Ever had that experience? Disgusted and infuriated, he didn't even wait to return home to write a hot letter of complaint. He used the, ho the hotel stationery where he stayed during his trip. In fact, that same night, he unloaded his fury in writing to the president of the airline and dropped it in the mail early the next morning. Upon his return home at the end of the week, he was surprised to find a special delivery letter waiting for him in his mailbox. It was perfectly typed in the sophisticated letterhead of the airline and from the president of the airline himself. It dripped with diplomacy. Apologetically, the president assured the executive that immediate action was being taken. Quote, I have temporarily pulled that particular aircraft off the line. We'll strip the upholstery from all the seats and then remove the carpet off the floor. New fabric has been ordered. It will not return to service until everything is in perfect condition. He continued, the flight attendant who served you and your meal has been reprimanded. Her job, I can assure you, is in jeopardy. And you have my word that such an embarrassing incident will never, ever occur again. We hope you will continue to fly on our airline, unquote. And it was signed by the president of the airline. Well, the businessman was duly impressed. 
That's more like it, he thought. However, he noticed something very unusual. Quite by accident, the secretary who had typed the president's letter had inadvertently included the businessman's complaint letter in the same envelope. And as the man looked over the original letter that he had written, he noticed that there was a note at the bottom that had been written to the secretary in the president's own handwriting. Obviously penned in a hurry, it said simply this, send this guy the standard roach letter. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul has not penned the standard roach letter, okay? He's not replied to a very real problem with some nice-sounding words that have no substance to it. In fact, he was deeply concerned over the problem of disunity that had been brought to his attention, and Chris referred to it a little bit last week. And in the midst of his answer, he explodes into a passage of Scripture considered to be one of the mountain peaks of the New Testament. It may well be the Mount Everest of New Testament Christology. This passage that we're going to look at this morning sings. Actually, I'd call it the hymn of humility. In fact, many scholars believe that this section that we're going to look at today is part of a well-known contemporary hymn composed in the early days of Christianity. It was sort of the early church's example of a Keith and Kristen Getty song. In this very polished passage of Scripture, Paul conveys the glory of Christ's person and work, the apex of true humility, and exhorts you and I as Christians to pattern ourselves and our lives after him. These are the true clothes of true Christianity. Paul's getting at the fact that a Christ-like pattern of life exhibits humility. But humility is like a watermelon seed, right? Once you think you've got a hold of it, it slips right through your fingers, pops right out of your hand. So how do we get a firm grasp on it? Well, Paul appeals to four areas of our Christian wardrobe which need to be maintained. And we're going to look at that. But let's first read the passage. Follow along with me as I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfishness, in verse 3, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. That is the Mount Everest of the New Testament. And so Paul appeals to four areas here in this text of our Christian wardrobe which needs to be maintained if we are to have this attitude of Christ. And the first thing that I think he indicates to us is that to be humble, we must maintain a Christ-centered attitude. Paul makes that very clear in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 is a hinge verse. Verses 1 to 4 and 6 to 11 swing on the hinge of verse 5. It points back to the concept of unity and ahead to the character of humility. Very simply put, Paul seems to be saying that the door of Christian unity swings on the hinge of Christ-like humility. Did you catch that? The door of Christian unity swings on the hinge of Christ-like humility. Paul literally says here, make it your habit to think the way that Christ thought. Maintain a Christ-centered attitude. Obviously, we as humans can never exactly duplicate Christ's ministry, but we can certainly strive to have his kind of an attitude, can't we? His attitude was one of selfless concern and service. It's been said that how you think will determine how you will act. Do you believe that? If that's true, then in order to act like Christ, Paul says we need to be thinking like Christ. Everything hinges on that. Verse 3, do nothing, it says, you can underline that, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Nothing must be done, Paul says, from the place of selfish ambition or empty conceit. Absolutely nothing. Very strong word in the original language. The wrench in the gears of Christian unity, Paul says, is individual self-interest and pride. Have nothing to do with it. Do nothing from it, Paul says. Selfish conviction is the real sin behind every other sin. In fact, it was the original sin, wasn't it? Selfish conviction? Oh, God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him. He's trying to keep that from you. Disobeying this command is self-idolatry. Maintaining a Christ-centered attitude then means that we primarily think of others before of ourselves. And boy, talk about a hard pill to swallow. Talk about a hard thing to make a habit of life. Because we're born with the sin that causes us to be defaulting to our own self-interests, aren't we? We come out of the womb with that tainted soul. Someone has said, if you don't think that's hard, trying to think of others before yourself, then I don't think you're human. And I agree with that statement. It's hard. But Paul says, secondly, that we need to maintain, in order to do that, a Christ attitude, we need to maintain a level-headed awareness. Level-headed awareness. Look at verse 6. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God 
a thing to be grasped. A truly humble person is acutely aware of exactly who he is. Humility is not some form of viewing yourself as the lowest person on earth. You knew that, right? It's not that. It's having a sane estimation of yourself and who you are. Jesus Christ was humble and meek, the Scripture says. Yet he distinctly knew who he was, didn't he? He was God. But he didn't use that fact for his own selfish gain. That's true humility. This verse begins a description of Christ's person that is theologically beyond compare. Paul says that Christ was existing in the form of God. If there was ever a verse of Scripture to prove Jesus' deity, this is it. Before Jesus ever came to earth as a man, he existed, Paul says, eternally in the same form as God. And the word form here is a very important, significant word. It doesn't mean shape like a mold, okay? As we would normally think form means. The word form here means the outward expression of what is the inward nature or reality. It means that in eternity past, Jesus Christ was existing in the very nature of God. The actual form of God. He was the same substance and essence as God. Look at John chapter 1. I'm going to give you a few verses. If someone ever asks you, how do you defend the fact that Jesus Christ was God? Take these verses down. These will help you. They're not the only ones, but there's some. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And say it with me, the Word was God. Not the Word was a God, but the Word was God. Okay? John 17, verse 5. Jesus prays, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see that? Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Paul writes, He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. That's enough right there. Underline that. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, now, that word firstborn, just let me tell you this quick. It does not mean the first created. Firstborn there is a title. It means like he's in the seat of authority as the firstborn son would be, right? He's the firstborn of all creation. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Is that pretty clear? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins... 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He was God. He is God. Not only that, but the tense of the word indicates that it's a continuing condition. In other words, he never ceased to be God and is still God now. There are those who do not believe that today. Plenty. In fact, they go door to door deceptively teaching that Jesus never said that he was God, never believed that he was God, and no one understood him to be God. Believe me when I say this, Jesus knew who he was and everyone who ever heard him teach knew exactly what he was claiming. They had no doubt in their mind. Paul indicates here that Jesus possessed equality with God before the foundation of the world. The word equal here in Philippians chapter 2 means exactly equal. You understand what that means, right? Exactly the same. Exactly equal. Jesus claimed deity in multiple places in the New Testament. But I want to show you just two specific scriptures where he not only claimed it, but there's no question that the people understood what he was claiming by their response to it. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Verses 30 to 33. Follow along with me as I read these verses. John 10, beginning in verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Look at the reaction in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. You think they understood what he was saying? Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews clarified The Jews answered him and said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They understood what he was saying very clearly. John chapter 5. Flip back a couple of chapters to John chapter 5. We have a similar thing going on here. John chapter 5, verse 17 Back up to verse 15, uh, I mean 16, it says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. And for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He knew exactly who he was and everybody knew who he was claiming to be. But it says here in Philippians 2 that Jesus became humble. Although Christ himself was God, Paul says he didn't consider that as something to be held on to selfishly and used and exploited for his own purposes. He voluntarily chose to suspend what he possessed, the display of his deity, in order to use it, in order not to use it to his advantage. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus ruled and reigned over the universe with his father. 
He didn't have to become a man. But he willingly did it. Taking no thought of himself. He considered others' needs first. Our needs. Your needs. My needs. His attitude stemmed from a level-headed awareness of who he was, but that did not get in the way of what he did. It did not circumvent his willingness to help others because he was God Almighty. That's what having the attitude of Christ is all about. It's the attitude that says, I can't keep whatever privileges I have to myself. I have to use them for others. And in order to do it, I'll gladly lay them aside and pay whatever price is necessary. It's the opposite of what the world refers to as swagger. Right? Paul's word to the church here in Philippi deals a death blow to our inclination to walk with swagger. Rather, we take up our crosses, the Bible says. Humility means maintaining a level-headed awareness on a host of different levels. Number one, humility maintains a proper awareness of ourselves. Bernard of Clairvaux once said that humility is, quote, the virtue by which a man becomes conscious of his own unworthiness, unquote. Now, while this was not the case with Jesus, it is with us. We need to be honest with ourselves and recognize our sin, don't we? True humility strips itself of the rose-colored glasses that, that views ourselves as we really are. Sinners once separated from God and in need of help, right? That's the way we need to view ourselves. A sure mark of humility is our mission of sin, admission of sin, and our dependence upon Jesus Christ for that cleansing. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and I want to read it to you out of the J.B. Phillips version. We're so used to hearing that verse quoted, I think, from pulpits that we kind of lose the thrust of it. I like the way J.B. Phillips put it. He says, if we refuse to admit that we are sinners, then we live in a world of illusion and truth becomes a stranger to us. But if we freely admit that we have sinned, we find God utterly reliable and straightforward. He forgives our sins and makes us thoroughly clean from all that is evil. For if we take up the attitude that we have not sinned, we flatly deny God's diagnosis of our condition and cut ourselves off from what he has to say to us. That kind of puts it in every man's language, doesn't it? Humility maintains a proper awareness of ourselves. Secondly, humility maintains a proper awareness of Christ. Christ is the ultimate example of how we are to live. We should judge ourselves by his standard and therefore walk in the same manner as he walked. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul urges us, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Thirdly, humility maintains a proper awareness of God and that he's holy. 
Even Jesus, who was God in human flesh, had an acute awareness of his Father's perfect holiness and sought only to do what the Father was telling him to do, right? He constantly prayed to his Father. We must echo the words of Christ and be willing to say ourselves, yet not my will, Father, but yours be done, right? Every one of us must remember that we come before God with nothing to commend us. Nothing to commend us. When Paul viewed himself with the proper self-awareness, what did he see himself as? The chiefest of sinners, right? In 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. When Peter viewed himself with the proper Christ-awareness, Peter exclaimed in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When Job viewed himself with the proper awareness of God, he said in Job chapter 42, verse 6, therefore I retreat and I repent in dust and ashes. And when Isaiah looked at himself with the proper God awareness, what did he cry? Woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now let me ask you a question. What do you say, what do I say, when we come into the presence of God? Are you aware that he's right here right now? Who are we to think that to worship him and to hear what he has to say to us today is an option. How could we think what he has to say to us through his word today is optional? It's not. He is almighty God. There is no option. You know what we need? All of us, myself included. We need what the Bible refers to as a healthy fear of the Lord. We need desperately to understand who it is we're dealing with. Central idea of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 that we're in right now is so abundant that if you were to wring out this text, this is what you'd end up with. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. One pastor recently wrote, As we connect the conversions and the backstory of the Philippian church to the letter at hand, we ought to recall the sort of fear of God that drives sinners into his loving arms. Most people coming to Christ fear hell and punishment for their sins, right? That's a completely rational fear to have when you know the facts. When you understand that we are sinners and that if we don't get right with God by grace through faith, that we're going to hell for eternity, right? That's a rational fear to have when you know the facts. It's a good fear to have, but it's not the best fear to have. Mainly because it cannot sustain the Christian life. That kind of fear is a good motivator, but it's a lousy sustainer. The fear we ought to have of God is not so much terror as it is awe. I mean awe. This pastor says, 
that their church does a family camp every summer where they go out into the woods and there's this little petting zoo at this camp for the children. And inside that petting zoo, they have what they call myotonic goats. Have you ever heard of them? Fainting goats. How many of you have heard of fainting goats? Have you ever seen fainting goats? I kid you not. They faint. Well, seemingly. YouTube it. You'll see it. It's the real thing. And he says it's fantastic. If you sneak up on these goats and startle them, their legs lock up and they'll black out and they fall over. It's, it's just, it looks animated. It's so hilarious. On the first day of camp, the directors give the tour, he says, on their church. And we walk into the pen with the fading goats and the directors plainly say, please do not mess with the goats. In other words, don't freak them out. Leave them alone. And of course, every man in the group is thinking, that goat's going to faint if I mess with it. (laughs) All right. right. And they immediately start thinking of creative ways to get the goats to faint, trying to see how quickly they can make the goat lock up and black out. They'll suddenly shout, ah, or smack it on the bottom. Whatever works, they get a kick out of it. It becomes a contest to see who can make the goat faint the fastest. Now he says, let me propose that this game would look totally different if instead of a goat in the pen, there was a lion. If there was a lion in the pen, I don't think anybody would run in shouting at it or smacking it on the butt. Maybe if a lion was in the petting zoo, some might think it was safe to go in and pet it or just hang out quietly Maybe, but no insane person in their right mind is making a ruckus in a pen with a lion, right? Nobody's playing the game. Let's startle the apex predator. Nobody's playing that game. Instead, there is respect, a little reverence, a little awe for the king of the jungle. There is a knowing of our place, yeah? We think, that's a lion. I'm a man. He could eat me. (laughs) This inspires fear. This inspires awe. That's the kind of healthy fear we ought to have of God. He's like... Narnia's Aslan, right? As described by Mr. and Mrs. Beaver in the Chronicles of Narnia, we know he's good. But who said anything about him being safe? True humility maintains a proper awareness of God and who he is. Next, humility maintains a proper awareness of others as well. See, Christ didn't cling to his privileges as the Son of God but laid them down for us and became one of us. Our attitude of humility as Christians will show when we stop elevating ourselves above others and start realizing that we are one with others. And that's, it's only by grace that we are saved. We need to show them that that same grace is available to them that we have experienced and received. But just thinking about it is not the answer, Paul says, We need to get down to the wire and do something about it. 
just like Christ did something about it. Humility maintains a Christ-centered attitude, yes, a level-headed awareness, yes, but thirdly, it manifests an others-oriented action. Look back at Philippians 2 and verses 7 and 8. It says, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is likely the most complex and deep theological doctrine that you and I will ever encounter in the Scripture. Yet, it's the most incredibly important to grasp piece of Scripture, and it has extremely high practical value. It's not just doctrine. It's there so that we could put it into practice. And how do we do that? Christ did two incredible things here in this text. Number one, he emptied himself. Number two, he humbled himself. During the days of slavery in the West Indies, a group of Moravian Christians found it almost impossible to witness to the slaves because they were totally separated from the ruling class, most of whom felt it was beneath them to even speak to a slave. There were two young missionaries who were determined to reach those oppressed peoples no matter what the cost. And in order to fulfill God's calling, they joined the slaves. They worked and lived beside them, becoming totally identified with them. They shared in their overwork. They shared the same beatings and they shared the same abuse. It's not strange that they soon won the hearts of these slaves and led many of them to God, to the God who would move men to such loving unselfishness. They in a word, emptied and humbled themselves in order to reach those people. The Apostle John writes of Christ, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, as one translation says. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. That's John chapter 1, verse 14. Out of the message... Paul here says that Christ emptied himself. What does that mean, he emptied himself? What did he empty himself of? It doesn't mean that Christ emptied himself of his deity or his equality with God, okay? Christ didn't lose his equality with God because God cannot cease to be God. Nothing was subtracted, rather... Something was added, okay? He took on the limitations of humanity and veiled his deity. And he did it by a few things, what Paul says here. Number one, he took the form of a bondservant. Number two, he became a man. And number three, he was found as a man and seen as a man. The word appearance or fashion is the word from which we get our words schematic here in this text. In other words, Christ was a man in both form and fashion. Everything about him was human. Christ permanently put on humanity so that he could identify with us. And in the world's eyes, it was the lowest form of humanity. He put on the clothes of a servant. And he disguised his manner of existence. He traveled incognito. He covered up his deity, so to speak. 
It was no exchange, but rather an addition. He didn't turn his deity in for humanity. Rather, he was both fully God and fully man simultaneously. Can you get your head around that? It's theologically referred to as the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union, remember that. Throw that one out to somebody someday. What do you believe about Christ? Oh, I believe in the hypostatic union. What do you believe? means that Christ was fully God and fully man at the same time. His humanity veiling his deity. And we all sing that at Christmas time, don't we? The familiar Christmas hymn accurately summarizes this text. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Lord of all became the servant of all in full dress. Someone once said that service is nothing but love in work clothes. This is an apt description of the incarnation because Jesus is the epitome of love in work clothes. God became man. From heaven to earth, from riches to poverty, from glory to shame, he appeared as a servant, performed the office of a servant, and was regarded as such. If that's not love, folks, I don't know what is. This was no play acting either. He practiced what he preached. I think it was his favorite sermon. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Right? In John chapter 13, in verses 12 to 17, Jesus stoops to wash the disciples' feet. You remember that scene? And he makes this arresting statement in verse 15. He says, for I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, I gave you an example that you should study about it on Sunday mornings. He didn't say, I gave you an example that you should form discussion groups around it in your small groups. He didn't say, I gave you an example that you should memorize my words and repeat them to each other. Jesus was clearly and boldly looking for action. He said, do as I have done to you. And as a servant, Jesus had no rights, had no riches, had no respect. He had no recognition. In light of our celebrity-saturated culture, who are we then to demand these things for ourselves if the only man on the face of the earth who was ever worthy of these things didn't demand them? What he did experience, however, was resentment and rejection, and that's what Paul's been talking about, right? Suffer with Christ. And he still gets that today, doesn't he, Jesus Men have submerged the image of his ultimate sacrificial act on a cross into a glass of human urine and have called that art. Men have used his name in the most horrendous applications and they call it comedy. Men have, used, have had the audacity to mock him and taunt him in arenas where tens of thousands of screaming fans cheer and yell for more and refer to that as entertainment. You see, friends, he is still despised and forsaken of men, as Isaiah put it. Despised and disrespected. Nobody's thinking they're in the pen with the lion. 
The prophet Isaiah wrote these things of him. And yet he was and is our only means and hope of salvation. Huh? Look at Isaiah chapter 53 for a moment. I remind you of a very powerful text. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, the prophet wrote, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Amazing passage of Scripture. Look at verse 12. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That's us. Of all the ways that God could have saved us from the judgment of hell, he chose the most humiliating strategy ever imagined by man. When Paul says that Jesus humbled himself, he wasn't kidding. Existing as God and then becoming a man is humiliating enough, but Christ became the lowest form of a man, a slave servant, and he took that body to the lowest, most degrading form of death ever devised by man, death on a cross. That shameful form of death that was reserved only for foreigners and criminals. And if you think that kind of death was humiliating to humanity, think for one moment of what it meant to his deity. God on a cross, dripping with blood, sweat, tears, thirsty, gasping, hurting, dying, and all the while forgiving you and me. And we don't deserve any of it. That, my dear friends... It's the essence of humility. That is the supreme epitome of being others-oriented in your action. And that, believe it or not, is what Christ calls us to as his disciples. Come follow me, Jesus said. But you can't be one of my disciples if you don't take up your cross daily and deny yourself daily and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote it in these words. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's what you sign up for, by the way, when you receive Christ. So if you don't want that, don't receive Christ. Most pastors will give you an invitation to receive Christ. I'm telling you, do not do it unless you understand the, pro, the, 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 the fine print. Because he doesn't call us to a pleasure walk by the lake somewhere. Not in this world. That's coming later. He will lead us beside still waters. And he does in our hearts and he restores our soul. He's a good shepherd. But there's a lot of pain in between 
time. If Jesus suffered, Paul says, we will suffer with him. So the big question here is, what is Christianity? What is your Christianity? What is my Christianity costing us today? What's it cost you today? Humility may not require us to endure intense physical death, you know, but it definitely requires a dying to ourselves. The bottom line of these verses is simply this. Surely if Jesus Christ humbled himself to this point, to the point of death on a cross, shouldn't we be willing to humble ourselves for each other in much, much, much smaller ways? Paul says a Christ-like pattern of life exhibits humility. Maintains a Christ-centered attitude, a level-headed awareness, and manifests an others-oriented action. And finally, true humility, Paul says, culminates in a God-bestowed honor. God-bestowed honor. Look at verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, but it follows with this, and humility comes before honor. That timeless principle is found throughout the scriptures. James says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And I'm so glad that uh, Dominic hauled that one out of the archives. I haven't sung that song since I don't know when, man. Okay, yeah. Great song. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt you, it says. Paul says that because of Christ's humble self-renunciation and voluntary, voluntary humiliation, that God granted him super exaltation, supreme exaltation, and all of it was for the purpose of glorifying the Father. Obviously, Christ's exaltation is much superior than ours will be. He was super exalted to the place of all rule and authority. His name, the name, is above every name, the Scripture says, in the entire universe. Amen? Historically, people have given him names of ridicule and reproach. They've slandered it and cursed with it. They still do today, but God has exalted that name above every other name in existence. Luke wrote in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What an incredible statement that is. And at the core of it, that is the present issue right now in your life in my life. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Because what we do with him now determines what he will do with us later. It's not simply the name that will cause all men to bow, but all that stands behind the name. The fact that Jesus is Lord is what will one day cause every living being in the entire universe to bow in agreement and acknowledgement. It doesn't matter how many people drag his name through the mud now. It doesn't matter how many times you curse him now. You can reject him if you want to now. 
But there's coming a day, and hopefully very soon, in which you, me, and everyone on the planet will openly confess it to be true that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Curios Jesus Christos, Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. And he is called Lord no less than 747 times in the New Testament. In the book of Acts alone, refers to him as Lord 92 times, while he's only called Savior twice. There was absolutely no question in the early church that the Lordship was, of Christ was at the heart of the gospel. People from every walk of life today are searching diligently for a Savior. They're searching everywhere and trying everything to save them from whatever. But I have yet to talk to anyone who is actually looking for someone they can submit themselves to. That's right. They're not looking for a Lord, a master, or a sovereign to reign over them. I don't find that to be true. Now, let, let me give you a little dose of biblical truth. You can't have one without the other with Jesus. He cannot be Savior and not Lord. John MacArthur said it well. He said, any message that presents a Savior who is less than Lord of all cannot claim to be the gospel according to Jesus Christ. You cannot parcel out Christ and choose which portion you want to take. As the cliche goes, he is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He is Lord, and those who refuse Him as Lord cannot use Him as Savior. Is He your Lord today? Is He Lord to you? That has a direct relationship to how you and I live, doesn't it? If He's Lord, that means He's Lord over all of our afflictions, all of our affections. He's Lord over our lusts and our loneliness. He's Lord of our pain. He's Lord of our plans. No matter what it is that you're dealing with, He is Lord over it. Rely on that fact and go to Him for your help. You involved in an immoral relationship? Do you think it's too hard for you to give up? He is Lord over it. Give it to Him. He's Lord over your weakness, your addictions, your bad habits. Your salvation depends upon the fact that He is Lord. Again, go back to the Christmas story. In Luke chapter 2, the angel said to the shepherds, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you glad tidings, good news of a great joy, which will be for all the people, that today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Right? It's plain right there. Savior Christ Lord. In Acts chapter 2, Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This then is the gospel we proclaim, that Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, humbled himself to die on our behalf. Thus he became the sinless sacrifice to pay the penalty for our guilt he rose from the dead to declare with power that he is Lord over all and he offers eternal life freely to sinners who will surrender to him in humble, repentant faith. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the truth that will save your soul.
This gospel promises nothing to the proud, rebellious person who wants to have one foot in heaven and keep the other foot in the passing pleasures of worldliness. But it offers everything that pertains to life and godliness to the broken, humble, and contrite hearts who are willing to come to him in faith with no reservations. So let me wrap this up. Where are you right now? Where are you right now in your spiritual journey? Where do you want to be? Because we've got to admit that we live in an age of unparalleled selfishness. I battle with it every single day. Just this morning in my office as I'm praying to come up here and preach, I'm like, Lord, I I can't preach this message because I know how selfish I've been this week. And here I'm talking about humility and being others-oriented. We've got to admit that we live in an age of unsurpassed, unparalleled selfishness. When we begin to squirm, when God makes demands on us, many years ago, Wilbur Reese captured the spirit of the age in which we live. He wrote this little piece. He says, I would like $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not the new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Now, if you're hearing his voice today, don't harden your hearts. You need to respond. Because now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. God has got you here for a reason. And you're listening to this message for a reason. You may never get another chance. I'm not talking about cheap professions of faith either. I'm talking about wholesale commitment that Jesus Christ is Lord. $3 worth of God will not cut it, according to Paul, according to Jesus There's no such thing anyway. You can't have $3 worth of God. Because he's not a Burger King. You can't have him your way. You have to take him as he is. Lord of all. Close your eyes. Jesus said these words in the book of Revelation. They stand as a monument to what we need. He's outside the church, knocking on a door that refuses to let him in. A church. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to respond in faith. Let no one leave here today, my Lord, without understanding that you desire to have a relationship with them, an intimate, personal, loving, forgiving, saving relationship with them. 
And one day we look forward to the fact, Lord God, those of us who know you, that we will bow in humble adoration and proclaim you to be Lord of all, Jesus Christ, Lord. And I ask for those who are here today that don't understand that, that they would bow in their hearts to you this morning, receive you by faith. They might not be able to understand all the little details about what that means, but Lord, you respond to someone who comes to you with brokenness and a humble and contrite heart. And so I pray that if there's anybody in this place that has not responded to you yet, that they would do it. Say, Lord, I know deep in my heart, I have an awareness of who I am and I need you. Thank you for Jesus. And I receive him as my Lord and Savior. May I glorify you from this point onward in my life for the sake of your kingdom and in your holy and precious name I pray. Amen.